people are like, oh, we can pay for anything. We all money, we print the money. You just get the money printer, go burr. <laughs> we kind of make fun of you know money printer, go burr. But is that what's really happening? Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode. I'm your host and moderator, Anthony Strain. And today I'm joined by Art Black. How's it going? Matteo Degal. Hey. With special guest, Adrian Delgado. How's it going? And this is Crowdsource Politics. On today's episode, we'll be discussing modern monetary theory, or MMT, what it is and why it's important today. Without further ado, let's start the show. So when I asked you all to do MMT, an MMT episode, everybody was pretty much basically on board. Um, was there any in particular reason why you guys agreed to do this one so quickly? I just happen to like finance and economics, I guess. Art, is there anything? Uh, what about you? Like you've been around the block a few times. Uh, <laughs> yes, I'm old. We get it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's an interesting uh, topic uh, because... It's one of those things that it gets, let's say, non-economics people interested in economics, even though they might also remain non-economics and not really know anything about it. it. It kind of functions as both a point for people who like discussing finance and economics, you know, to kind of argue about different changes that we could institute in the country uh, or different ways of looking at how we do business. But it also seems to be an interesting hook to pull people in off the sidelines. So... It kind of pulls double duty there in a way that other philosophies outside of uh, arguably maybe libertarianism do in, in, in so far as it pulls in people that maybe don't really understand a lot of the un underpinnings, but kind of like the, the top line vibe. Gotcha. Now that makes a lot of sense. Adrian, um, not many of our listeners uh, know exactly maybe who, who you are. Uh, why did you agree to do this episode with us? I've been, um, I've been like in, in and out of the... MMT uh, communities online uh, for the last like three years. And um, as, I, as I was mentioning before we started, I met Warren Mosler in person a couple times. I met Stephanie Kelton a couple times. Um, I've, I've already been to two MMT conferences. It's a really, really interesting uh, work that they're doing. Um, you have people like Rohan Gray who and Raul Castro and uh, Nathan Tankas who are really doing uh, phenomenal academic work that's uh, legal. Um, it's very interdisciplinary. It has legal work. It has finance work. It has economics work. It has anthrop anthropological work. So, I mean, if I could uh, offer myself as a stand-in for anything uh, that needs points of clarity or 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 anything that I consider to be legitimate criticism or critique, I mean, that's that's uh, something that I think is definitely worthwhile. Awesome, man. Oh, great. Greatly appreciate you joining us on the show today. Uh, for people that might not know those names that you've just discussed, I'll just go ahead and cover the two biggest. So, Warren Mosler is can be considered kind of the father of MMT. Uh, he has been uh, pushing some variation of the theory for at least the last, we can almost say 40 years now. And Stephanie, uh, I'm sorry, you're gonna have to pronounce her last name again for me. <laughs> Stephanie Kelton. Stephanie Kelton. Okay. So Stephanie Kelton, uh, she is kind of the um, standard bearer for MMT right now. She has been interviewed on you know, NPR, Bloomberg, and just kind of evangelizing for MMT as a way, as a new way to kind of look at uh, macroeconomics and uh, monetary uh, policy in general. Yeah, she was also uh, Bernie Sanders' senior economic advisor while he was in the Senate and was on staff during his campaign as well. 
2016, correct? Like, just yeah, for sure. both 2016 for and both. 2020. Thank you. Thank you for that point of clarity. Um, so what kind of, what, what would you say is kind of the top line look, uh, uh, for MMT, kind of like if you could condense it into one sentence, what would you say it was? What you, what would you say it is? So the way I would describe it is, it's a it's an analytical approach. Um, it's an academic approach to studying modern economies uh, that uses um, a a historical, um, anthropological, and legal. Uh, a framework for understanding how econ modern economies operate. And so it leads to a couple of varying conclusions, one of which is uh, the most, what it's known for is that uh, monetarily sovereign countries that issue debt in their own currency don't need to worry about sovereign default. Um, and that's something that I would say is in fact like the top line when you think of MMT. Um, so when, when we say monetary sovereign, I know that a lot of the people that might be listening to this might just be, this might be their first time getting introduced into, uh, what modern monetary theory is. And they might not know all the, uh, parlance or what goes into it. So what, what is monetary sovereign? It's a currency issuer. Basically you issue your own currency by fiat. And, and when you say issue your own currency by fiat, you mean the uh, the currency that is in circulation for maybe a particular uh, nation or or, or state um, has control over that as well? Is that how you would say that? Yeah, basically they have a monopoly on the currency that's used within a certain uh, jurisdiction. Gotcha, gotcha. No, that makes that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, is there anything else that is in particular to monetary sovereign that you know maybe? Um, other countries might not have access to. Uh, I would actually say um, one way, one good way of understanding what a monetarily sovereign country is is by understanding what a monetarily unsovereign country is. So uh, the best, the most clear example would be the eurozone countries, right? So a country like Greece, which uses the euro, the central bank for the euro is not located in Athens; it's located in Geneva, and um, the reason for that is because. Unlike the United States, where we have the Federal Reserve System um, that in which we have 100% control over American dollars, Greece has no say at all in terms of the money supply for euros. And so that's that would be the, the really big distinction. And, and so with that, would we say that it is central bankers without the input of the member states in the eurozone that uh, determine how much currency of the of the euro currency is in circulation i, I would it's certainly more like nuanced but i mean that's that's that would be the way i would put it i would say that in, in the individual member states of the eurozone don't actively control uh their ability to issue more or less uh euro denominated bonds they have no control over the monetization of those bonds so that so you know if, if greece wants to spend you know 500 billion euros in some kind of stimulus package um, the only way they can do that is that the ECB, that's the European Central Bank, agrees to monetize that. Otherwise, they have to actually depend on the bond market, in which case they are at the mercy of investors. And, and not, not only would they be on the mercy of investors, but they would be at the mercy of, say, how much the, the euro itself is worth. They wouldn't have any control of that either, correct? Yeah, and also with uh, taxpayers, because in that case, you'd actually do have to depend on public sources of revenue. 
Right. So I guess that would be one of the uh, clear, more more important distinctions would be that a monetary sovereign has the ability to issue bonds or debt. Treasury notes is what we we use in the United States in a currency that they themselves directly control. And so, you know, if there's ever a need for, um, you know, another pay uh, payment to be made, then they have to turn hat in hand to either their citizens or international uh, lenders to get those that currency in order to pay back those loans. Yeah, exactly right. Okay. Um, so is there anything... Is there anything else that needs to be mentioned for a monetary sovereign besides having control over the currency itself, as well as being able to issue the debt in said currency? I would add that, um, I mean, this is, this is a little bit more of the details, but I would add that having a free float uh, fiat currency regime matters. Uh, so when you have a country, just to give you an example, like um, Venezuela or Zimbabwe, which had fixed exchange rates, meaning that they, the, the central bank's reserves of U.S. dollars had to match a certain amount of uh, Zimbabwe dollars or Venezuelan bolivars in circulation. When you have a situation like that, even though technically it is still fiat currency, uh, there is still a, a foreign exchange limitation on their ability to, to spend, um, which could basically be problematic if they do want to engage in widespread stimulus spending because that could cause all kinds of disruptions in the supply chains. Uh, companies depend on, on the foreign exchange reserves of a country in order to be able to pay for imports. If, uh, those, if those foreign exchange reserves are not there because the, the government is, is overspending due to this fixed exchange regime, then what you have is a situation where you could have hyperinflation, you could have shortages of, of imported goods, um, et cetera, et cetera. And, and this becomes important. Would we say this becomes important because for for like some historical examples like gold backing the dollar where, you know, you have, you have the pre, a person can go in and be like, hey, I want gold now. Here's a dollar. Give me the value of give me the amount of gold this dollar is worth. And then that depletes reserves uh, further than what necess if there's faith lost in the currency would deplete um deplete reserves quicker than than anticipated yeah you you could have a run on the, on the currency uh you can't you, you can't have a run on the, on a currency that's uh free floating and fiat it's just physically not possible all right and just as a kind of a side point it's not necessarily tied to it being sovereign but it is you know an important aspect is that you can only pay your taxes in this currency so you know for instance like us dollars when you have to pay your taxes at the end of the year you, you don't pay it in gold or Bitcoin. You, you have to pay in U.S. dollars. Does that do anything else uh, for the currency in general? Is there, is there any, anything else that's important for that? It mandates demand, so it gives it some value. Oh, that's good. You're going to need those dollars to pay taxes. That's right. And so that then we would say that, so these are like the basically three basic tenets. We would say that, uh, the currency, the issuer of the currency needs to be able to control it. So the federal government, uh, a federal government or a, a nation state government has to be able to control its currency. It has to be able to issue denominations within or issue debt denominated within said cur currency that it controls. 
it has to be free floating in order for there to for it not to be pegged to anything in particular in order for those other two things to also work and then we would say the taxes has to be does does taxes in said currency have to be a thing as well you can call it legal tender status okay yeah kind of sums it up uh mateo there was something that you wanted to add what, what was it um i think a lot of mmt proponents they don't get the credit they deserve for it but they actually uh pay more attention to inflation than a lot of people would expect people think that uh, mmt means you know just spend forever and never stop and everything's fine but that's not it uh stephanie kelton has been on national television saying the result of too high of uh deficits is inflation I mean, on the flip side of that too, though, it's going to be too low a deficits would be unemployment. Right. So, so there's, there's some sort of balancing act between, you know, spending, spending the, the currency into maybe existence, I guess is what we would say to, um, to inflation. Does that. Yeah. It's not the cartoonish spend until, you know, you can't spend any more thing that a lot of people criticize them for. They're actually a lot more measured. Yeah, it's not the magical money tree, even though that's what a lot of exactly. proponents and opponents of MMT would call it. Um, there's a video actually online where uh, they have uh, the currency issuers at Superpower and it's just going through blasting everything with dollars. And it's just like, come on, guys. <laughs> Go ahead, Art. Uh, just on inflation. So, and you guys are a lot smarter than me at this, but so I understand it, it's kind of a balance between like uh, Keynesianism leans more into like monetary policy and interest rates and MMT is more about fiscal policy and using like taxes and bonds to like control inflation. Is that more or less accurate? I conflate them. I think they're kind of, I don't think Keynes didn't talk about fiscal policy. That was very important. I meant as far as inflation control, but is that? Um, um, I am actually not sure. Yeah, that's something I can't answer, actually. Yeah, Adrian, do you have something you want to put in with that? The way I would describe it is that MMT is actually kind of going back to OG Keynes because Keynes was kind of, um, his thought was a little, the way it was codified, let's put it that way, by the John Hicks and you know the Irving Fishers was basically talking primarily in terms of the relationship between aggregate demand, aggregate supply, and the money supply. Right. So it was trying to figure out how to reconcile those two things. So in terms of inflation nested into the models that they were presenting was this assumption that inflation was really a monetary phenomenon primarily. And that's which is why you have the offshoots of, of this orthodox Keynesian approach, which were the monetarists mm -hmm. uh, led by Milton Friedman, gotcha. whom basically you know, went full, you know, full-fledged inflation is strictly a monetary phenomenon that it, it's not in any way, shape or form a fiscal phenomenon. So the way I would definitely say it is that if you go to OG Keynes, I think that it's clear, um, it's not explicit, but I think it's clear by implication that for, for Keynes, it is inflation is, is both. It's a fiscal and a monetary phenomenon because he was trying to figure out the relationship between those two things anyways. Right. Yeah. And anything that moves C plus I plus G up or down, I think, is fair game in Keynes's eyes, or was. Right. Yeah. Okay. I think we would we would also uh, should should mention that even while we're saying it's there's this argument between whether it's fiscal or or monetary and whether it's uh, too many dollars chasing 
too too few goods or whatever is that while while we're talking about this in a very broad sense you can have you know individual inflation for particular assets we see that in our economy today with education healthcare and housing so you know it's it's just something that we should we we should be uh cognizant of yeah certain uh capacities you know you can only utilize so much area within an economy where prices just have nowhere to go but up we got to pay attention to uh basically economic capacity i think that's a lot of the reason why MMT talks about like infrastructure spending too, because when you create those capacities, you the deficits don't matter at that point. Like it's going to be fine in the future. You're going to have capacity for them to eat up that deficit. And, and people like Friedman were very much like free market. I don't know, free free market is God types. Right? He tried to, he tried to revive uh, the classics. I think I think basically in his eye, the aggregate supply line was like a vertical, just straight up and down thing almost, if not exactly that. And so, you know, in his, yeah, probably. And I think in like his mind and in, in you know, Austrian eco- economist, and I know we're getting into the weeds here, but uh, in different, you know, economic theory that's not Keynesian, we'll say, is that, you know, the market will balance itself out. And so if you have inflation, it's probably because you have too much, too many dollars in circulation or too much of a currency in circulation, not necessarily because there's, there's not, the exact amount of supply like any any supply driven inflation is in their eyes completely temporary so just to uh throw another monkey wrench into this um from what i understand with mmt they have another layer uh as far as inflation control uh which would be uh the jobs guarantee uh which has uh gosh they've got a term it's like non-accelerating inflation buffer employment ratio or something like that for uh the built-in inflation control of having basically everyone employed. So what do we think about the jobs guarantee as being another kind of a, a break on that? As a, as a break on inflation itself? Inflation, specifically. If everybody's employed, then there isn't slack within the economy and there's production. And we would assume that production capacity is full. So if production capacity is, is full with full employment, then there's the amount of goods being produced can, be, can suck up the amount of dollars in the economy, broadly speaking, kind of balances it out and uh, would tamp down on inflation. I'm not entirely sure if that's 100% correct, but that's the way I interpret it. Uh, I think the idea is to get either dollars into productive capacity or somewhere else where they're not just you know, causing more demand than we would like, but that's just my take. And also not having dollars clogged up in, in monetary liquidity where it's not acting either inflationary nor is it acting for product uh, for the development of productive capacity. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's something we saw with um, a lot of the QE shenanigans. Uh, a lot of those dollars just ended up getting clogged up in the monetary system. It didn't really go anywhere. It wasn't. It didn't go to demand. It didn't really go to supply production. And uh, the other the other point I was going to say is, um, you know, so long as we're defining inflation as the overall increase in prices, um, there are still possible there's still possibilities for you to have, as you mentioned earlier, uh, certain sectors of the economy that have uh, price inflation, um, and there are structural and political reasons for that. In the case of healthcare and education, th- those two sectors, especially, uh, what you see when you get into the details is that there's a lot of institutional reasons for why we saw such a high uh, rise in prices that are that are not they don't really necessarily have much to do with fiscal or monetary policy for sure like uh, you know um how housing is my go-to because i i studied up on it a bit um over the last couple of years is that you have a lot of zoning issues where it, con- where it artificially constrains the supply of residential 
units and that causes and it's not keeping up with demand so that causes prices to rise and that's purely that's nearly a purely political uh, issue at least for the united states countries that have less land have other issues where they have they're constrained but within the united states we have high amount of uh supply yeah and i think that that's something that's an area uh, where mmt i think is more supplemental uh to other uh schools of thought that are that are maybe a little more micro-based yeah um that's you too. know like it go, you know the healthcare is kind of my thing just like how housing is your thing <laughs> uh, you know, you, when, when, you, when you look at like different healthcare systems um, and how they operate, the, you know, the, the question for me is not so much anymore, at least, uh, how do you pay for X? It's just a matter of, well, you know, if you, if you want to create a national universal healthcare system that is of quality and is universal and has, um, and, and it, you know, it's, it's, it's using the resources of the country efficiently and at its optimum capacity, then that just be, that actually turns into a political question because it's yep. well, how exactly do you want the the market uh, to take a role in that? How much do you want the state to take a role in that? And, and it no longer becomes a question of um, of of you know the fiscal or the monetary, but the actual individual institutional creation of those systems. It, it becomes an ideological question rather than a question of uh, affordability. Yeah, exactly. Uh, before you, you said something about um, getting bogged up in the monetary system, are you talking about like the excess reserve accounts at the Fed? Yeah, like um, when you when you look at the, I'm I'm, I'm really I'm referencing the that we had right after 2008, right? So because there was a lack of fiscal policy response, um, and there was purely a monetary response, what we basically saw was that we saw the liquidity just ended up getting clogged up. In the monetary system, um, money became very, very cheap. Interest rates went down, but that didn't translate to either inflation nor to a substantial uh, increase in production. Uh, okay, because I was just going to say, um, if you were talking about excess reserves, we did that kind of by design. Bernanke started charging or paying interest on the reserves, so banks would hold it uh, at the reserve banks and actually have the banks act like reserve banks, like they should. But I think we're—I think I was mistaken what you were talking about. Yeah, Ben Bernanke is, is an interesting character to me. He um, he's someone who who over time kind of realized just how mistaken a lot of the stuff that that he exactly. learned that he thought was true. Like I actually read his memoir, and his memoir is almost like a mea culpa because uh, he's basically lamenting the fact that there's there was so much um, opposition and so much uh, you know group psychology of 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 this you know well we can't do x we can't do x we can't do y that moral it was just hazard moral hazard there was a <laughs> lot of like this self-fulfilling self-fulfilling prophecy going on that it was really unfortunate because then i mean bernanke for example now actually doesn't even identify as a republican anymore he actually i think voted for hillary clinton like he's definitely moved to the left um on a lot of these economic issues so also a uh, treasury secretary at the time henry paulson same thing man that guy complete 180 like he was like he was like the free market like one of the champions of it he was like a celebrity for it he was a goldman banker before that too so of course and then right. after that he's just like telling banks he's like nah fuck you you're gonna fail if you don't buy him we're not helping you buy him <laughs> yeah yeah the uh the 2008 crash definitely changed some minds i have a lot of respect for people who switch like that you know there's a lot of people who just really stuck to their guns and just repeated a bunch of nonsense we're lucky that at least <clears throat> ron paul 
Yeah, well, that's that's the extreme end of the spectrum. The extreme end of the extreme end. <laughs> Alan Greenspan didn't really switch, though, did he? Oh, yeah. He uh, had the fam- that famous testimony in Congress where he basically just said, everything I thought was true about the economy was wrong. Yeah, but then he, then he went back and doubled down on it like three or four weeks later or something. I didn't know about that part. But I, I know when uh, I remember watching, uh, this is back when Jon Stewart was still the host of The Daily Show. Uh, I remember he had Alan Greenspan on and he actually asked him, you know, point blank, like, you know, like, where did you go wrong? And Greenspan just straight up said, like, we were, we were working on assumptions that were faulty. It's just yeah. we were working on bad assumptions. I know what you're, I know what you're talking about. The problem with a lot of the, uh, the, I don't even know what you want to call it, the neoliberal, free marketeer, libertarian, whatever, you know, label you want to attach to that. The problem with, um, the problem with any model, right, is that it's not so much that the model could be wrong, right? So the model could have excellent math. It could have excellent, you know, excellent linear functions or whatever. But if you're, the assumptions you're putting into the model are not based on something that is applicable to reality, then the model is not going to help you, period. Yep. Yeah, if, you have your, if your basic hypothesis is incorrect and you didn't prove it to be incorrect, you're just going to have bad – you're going to have good data be coming out with bad results. Yeah, the purpose of a, of a model is to have predictive capability, right? So if a, if a model is not, not mapping to, re, to what's happening in reality, it's just not a good model. It's why I personally like behavioral economics so much because it takes into account sociology and psychology into predictive modeling. And it's like, well, what are people actually doing? Let's not assume people are rational because we know that's not true. <laughs> like rational and yeah. rational actors theory is, is, is different. I meant like as far as, you know, you have prisoners dilemma and stuff like this that make things not work perfectly. That's what I should say. Yeah, you should check out uh, Robert Schiller. I love him as far as uh, he's a big name in that behavioral economics. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I've read some of his stuff, but I couldn't tell you for certain. Oh, he's excellent. All right. Uh, there's a lot of economists out there who like kind of stray almost a little too far into political waters, which like can be distracting. But Schiller really like tiptoes around that. It seems like that's good. It's good. I'm pretty sure he won a Nobel Prize, didn't he? Uh, yeah, I think he, 2012 was it. He shared it with some yeah, other. Yeah, that was pretty recent. Yeah, I was really happy when he got that, actually. Um, so I think we, we covered a bit of the theory. We didn't get into too deep into the weeds with it. This is a, a show that's meant to be only an hour. Um, so we cover what we can. Um, but I think it's important to talk about some of the political implications of modern, modern monetary theory and you know whether or not it's been used forever or not forever, at least um, as far as, uh, you know, at least since like, we'll say the eighties or, and is there anything um, along those lines politically that would, that needs to be discussed? Like, you know, is there anybody that's being disingenuous? Is there anybody that's like, got it wrong? Uh, and that sort of thing. I think Krugman is a little disingenuous when he tries to attack it. Like he's got decent points. He's a smart guy and he knows what he's saying, but I think he just is a little more careless than he should be. I think as far as Krugman's concerned, I think his primary um, motivation for that, though, is the worry that if everyone believes that money is fiction and, you know, people believe money is fiction. But if everybody believes that, you know, you don't have to worry about paying for anything and then what's to stop people from paying their taxes? Will the state have to come through and start locking everybody up if everybody just start stop paying their taxes? What does become the value of the money? That sort of thing. I think he's worried about stuff like that. 
Yeah, well, I, I could actually share his fears with that because a lot of people, a lot of proponents of MMT just, they really just, they fulfill the stereotypes of the opponents and it's just not a good thing. Go ahead, Art, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, that's really, you know, probably my uh, interface with a lot of this is that, uh, I mean, compared to you guys, I'm kind of a knuckle dragger on this stuff. So I am vaguely, you know, aware of kind of how it all works. But, you know, just thinking back, you know, normally um, there was kind of this universal consensus of how the economy worked more or less. And even the quote unquote left traditionally buys into or, you know, bought into this idea that, you know, we need taxes to pay for spending. And, you know, even when it's discussed by major politicians of either party, there's kind of a common way that it's talked about it. And one of the really interesting things about MMT is that it kind of reintroduces a lot of like basic Keynesian themes that for whatever reason, the parties don't like to discuss. And as a political tool, it's kind of interesting to see that it has like these two tiers. And one is the people that actually understand the mechanics of it, like you guys. And then, you know, dumber people like me that kind of figure out, uh, oh, okay, so it's not like the US is a household budget, like we can actually spend money we don't have. And you know, stuff that would be very elementary to you guys. It's like like earth shattering to people on the outside. But there's this other track of people who are like, oh, we can pay for anything. We all money, we print the money. Just get the money printer, go burr. So, <laughs> you know, it, it's a thing where there are people that are like way below you know, what they should be in understanding. And it almost makes you look at people like Krugman or the Democratic Party or whoever that are real reluctant to say what they apparently already know. I mean, and clearly the Republicans know it too, because they spend on whatever they want, whenever they want it. They just try not to let other people do the same thing. Like they're thrilled with deficits right now. I mean, Trump was burning a trillion dollars a year before we even hit like rough water. If, if it's a household budget, you can't cut taxes and not cut your spending. You know, th that's the thing is that they kind of run under this fiction. They're like, well, you know, we've got to be careful with the taxpayer money and you can't spend more than you make and da, da, da. And, you know, why do you have a cable bill and a cell phone? Maybe you should cut back on your expenses. <laughs> yeah, they look at the deficit. That, that's their kind of ideological take, but they clearly don't believe in that at all when it gets down to doing what they want to do. So I think it's just this big, weird fiction that for whatever reason, we've decided not to let the little people engage in. And MMT is this weird kind of like gateway drug that gets them into it and realize that this is how the big people actually operate. So as far as that goes, I think it's got a lot of political utility, but there's certainly that Krugman-esque fear of people who will take it too far. Adrian, do you want to break in? Yeah. I, for one, am totally in favor of the of the vulgarizing and the proletarianization of the of money particular burr. I 100% <laughs> am, am in favor of that proliferating online. Anything to get people to just understand that, especially with the current COVID-19 pandemic, it's it's been like just so blatant in your face that they don't really need to get the money from anywhere to be able to credit the accounts that they that they appropriate in Congress. I mean, it's it's just it's so in your face. The two trillion repos that the Fed did in January, plus the the two trillion um, stimulus bill they just passed, plus whatever you know additional you know, monetary shenanigans the Fed's going to do from now until end of the year. It, it's all just so blatant and in your face that if, if people online are, are memeing this and saying, you know, money printer go burr, I'm all for it because then it, it makes our jobs easier if we want to fight for something like, I don't know, Medicare for all or 
whatever jobs guarantee whatever you want someone points out well how are you gonna get the money it's money principal bird dude <laughs> right um that's 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 i'm i'm all i'm all good with that um but the other point i was gonna say is like yeah going back to krugman He's actually very interesting because I've been I've I had followed uh, his criticisms of MT very closely, and he does this weird thing where he will basically say, "MMT is correct, but they're saying nothing new," and then yeah. he will say, "But they're also dangerous, but also they're not saying anything new." And he loves going back to this. I can't understand the distinction between what MMTers say and what the Keynesians, uh, like me, say. And I mean, honestly, it's, it's, I, I kind of understand why he's so confused. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that the way MMTers, uh, especially someone like Warren Moser, who was not um, an academic economist, right? He got a BA in economics, but he start, his, his, his career was first in, in retail banking. Right. Um, and, and then he moved into hedge funds. So his, his uh, career trajectory was looking at everything from the point of view of a financial investor. And, you know, when you're not an academic economist, the way you explain things or the, or the, or the use of jargon or the, let's say, the battlefield, right? So the weapons of the battlefield are, are different in academic economics than they are in other fields. And economics is, as a, as, as a whole, a very insular field. I, I remember uh, Slavoj Žižek made this point about how economics has the least amount of interdisciplinary citations out of any of the humanities and social sciences. And as a result, that breeds this issue where, well, you have the ivory tower economists who only speak in models, only speak in linear functions. And if you don't talk to them in models and linear functions, then they don't understand what you're saying. So I think that that is also a contributing factor to the miscommunication. Yeah, I could definitely see that. That's a good point. So we, we kind of we make fun of the you know, money printer go, but um, is there really, is that what's really happening though? Is, is the repo market injecting a ton of money into, into circulation or is it kind of like you know temporary where you give somebody a short-term loan and then they pay it back like almost right away with a little bit of interest if the federal interest rate is is over zero or whatever depends what it is if you're talking about like the repo market it's basically the fed saying i'll take your collateral you get the loan but if you don't pay me back i keep it but uh in other areas it could be something totally different okay and and so would that necessarily increase the money supply though? If the if the intention is to buy have whoever the the collaterals got taken back, because then wouldn't that on the other end take the money out of circulation in the future? Uh, yeah, like it, it just to me, uh, we look at the repo market. Like yes, tech on a very very technical point, um, it is exactly the way Mateo described it, which is that they take the collateral in exchange with the loan. And if they don't pay it back, they keep the collateral, but that never happens, right? So what always happens is they just roll over uh, and they just roll over indefinitely. Um, you have, you know, overnight repos, you have six month repos, you have three month repos. So, I mean, to, to me, it's just like in, in not, maybe not in the most technical sense, but effectively it is pretty much money printer go burr. I mean, it's the lender of last resort. So I don't know. I think, well, I mean, didn't TARP got paid back, right? But that was fiscal. We made we made a profit. Yeah, that was also fiscal. He's right. Okay, but the but didn't the the currency from the come from the Fed for that? I think no. Well, I think a lot of the Fed programs do roll over a lot, but they still leak back. 
you know, it's still all, all roads lead to the fed. And, and if, you know, they, they might roll it over, but they're making payments on those, those still as well. Right. Yeah. I mean, you're going to have, um, a balance of payments, obviously. Uh, but the, the wider point is that there's, there's nothing like, you're never going to see a case where a bank, uh, a commercial bank, failed to, you know, adequately monetize what it owes the Fed, right. and then therefore, you know, the, the Fed is forced to nationalize the bank. I mean, the, the last time that ever happened was with AIG, mm-hmm. and AIG wasn't even a commercial bank, so, you know. Yeah, but I don't think they put up their entire business. I think they just put up some collateral. Yeah, AIG was right. that. Yeah, yeah. So no, the reason I was asking is because like if there's being there's payments being made, then you know the money printer went, but you know it wasn't like constant because there's money that was being taken out, so it kind of tapped down on it, right? That's the way we should look at it. In a technical sense, yes. Okay, just making sure. So we 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 kind of need to talk about the ideological lines being driven here um get into the politics a little bit with this because if we agree that you know republicans don't care about the deficits democrats sometimes do sometimes don't you know it it, it kind of seems to be who is in, in a position of power or what exactly we're talking about like then what are the ideological roadblocks to people adopting mmt as being true ideology like when a Republican or Democrat is against deficit spending, it's usually depending on who's the one proposing it. Like these people are mostly just being hypocrites. It's not their view. They both love it and hate it. It just depends on what's more advantageous to what they're trying to do. But we already said, we said earlier that not, even though people don't really care about deficits, they do care, maybe not care about deficits, but they're not accepting MMT as being factual. So there's ideological roadblocks to that. What are those? Uh, probably just because someone says we can't default, you know, the idea, it comes back to the idea of just analogizing the U S money system with like a household. People don't realize it's not, we don't have to go find dollars to pay our bills. And when we say that people just assume you're like, Oh, you know, money printer go burr. Okay. Art, did you want to break in with a point? Well, just that, I mean, the, I think the obvious ideological, uh, problem is that they don't want, um, what, you know, I think it was called earlier the proletarization of this understanding. <laughs> yeah, and it, it sounds kind of funny to say it like that, but you know, at a real functional level, you have uh, people who understand how the economy works and then how they talk about it when they speak to it in public. And you know, to hear a Republican speak in public, you know, you think that we're on this you know crash course, razor edge of you know destruction, and you know, if we don't stop spending right away and uh, you know, everything's going to fall apart. But then they immediately, when they get into power, cut taxes and spend like crazy. So I, I think that, you know, it's clear from their actions that everyone understands how the system really works. But to admit that would take away your leverage to argue against your opponents. Mm. So, okay. I mean, that's really all it is, is that we're just so partisan now. Uh, and maybe in the past, there were different reasons for it, you know, but probably less partisan and more, uh, let's say, class-based as far as keeping that understanding at a higher echelon and letting people on the bottom believe something else. And now it's just purely, you know, entirely partisan. And, you know, you can't admit that, well, we, we could afford Medicare for all. We just don't want to because, you know, that would perhaps, you know, cut into what we would want to spend money on because the money isn't unlimited, but it's far less limited than we've been led to believe. 
Gotcha. Adrian, you wanted to break in with a point? Yeah, so uh, I might be revealing my just and more Marxian analysis here, but <laughs> I, I, I think that it's, it's less... Uh, so, like, to me, uh, you know, the, the ideology is, is, a, is a consequence, not a cause of something a little bit more deeper going on, which is the actual, like, class-based struggle that's happening, which is that uh, the, the reason why Republicans and Democrats both uh, will argue, um, you know, that you can't spend money helping poor people, and then when they get in power, they get a bunch of tax cuts to rich people, or in the case of, of Democrats, they just basically do very, very watered-down social safety nets uh, that are easily demolished by the the proximate uh, Republican administration that comes up next is because uh, that is whom their constituency uh, is represented by. So their, their constituency is primarily this uh, coalition of, of financiers, industrialists, tycoons who have a, a, who have captured the political process. And so they are reorienting the resources of the country in a way that will give them the return first. And anything that is left over goes to the masses. And, and when you look at it like that, then everything kind of makes sense because you go, oh, well, it's not that Mitch McConnell doesn't know that, you know, that the money, that the money that he passes is, uh, is coming from thin air. It's just that he, he will never, ever, ever say it out loud because to say it out loud would mean oh, well, why don't we spend money on poor people? And that's not what his constituents base wants. And that has less to do with the fact that there's, that I think, I don't think that they believe that there's not enough money. I think it's really just a matter of, well, who's going to own the resources of the country? Uh, in the case of healthcare, if you have a Medicare for all system, you just demolished the healthcare sector's 20% of GDP. The, insur the health insurance sector is probably something like 30% of that. You know, So we're talking like a, a roughly one and a half trillion dollar industry, right? That's a lot of money. There's a lot of assets. There's a lot of uh, shareholders and, and, and board of directors and, and, and CEOs that are involved in that operation. And if you challenge that by proposing a single payer system, yeah, you better bet they're going to fight back because you're, you're tackling their wallet. So to me, it's, it's not even a matter of, of whether or not they actually believe that there's uh, not enough money to spend, but it's actually just, it's, it's a, it's a truly a political thing. It's, they are, it's not even ideological. It's, it's really just material interest, I think. Yeah. I mean, I can definitely see uh, where you are coming from with, with that. Um, I think there, I mean, we can talk about, you know, cl intersecting class interest and, and social sociology and stuff with that. I think there, there's a bit of to do with maybe how people, for lack of a better term, maybe naturally look at the world. Um, you know, we have psychological analysis of, of populations that that show that people with that are conservative ideologically have you know different pain points than people that are uh, liberal ideologically. Ideologically, um, so I think that might play a bit of a role in it as well. It might not just be simply material interest per se, but um, that definitely plays a big part of it. In my opinion, yeah, I don't mean to reduce it that much, but the the point I'm I'm trying to make is like you know there are many men whom you could talk to, and and Gallup polls uh, show this that there is a a significant support for public services and for uh, social welfare programs when you frame the question in a specific way versus another way, and exactly how you said it has to do with the pain points. So um, in the case of Medicare for all. 
Uh, I think the last Gallup poll has something like what 52% of Republicans in favor of it, you know? So it's, I, I mean, the whole ideological question, uh, I think is a little bit more complicated. I think, I don't know. I don't know if for a fact the people who, you know, like Republicans are really all that ideological. I think that they think they're ideological. You know, if Trump teamed up with Bernie and said, you know, we're going to pass Medicare for all, it's going to be a bipartisan, it's going to be beautiful, it's going to be fantastic. <laughs> then I, I don't see why Trumpists wouldn't just rally behind that. Like, I, I honestly wouldn't see, like, you'd see the high level Republicans abandon Trump, right? So Mitch McConnell would, would be like opposed to that. You know, the Paul Ryans of the of the of the Republican establishment will be opposed to that. But the actual base of Trumpists will I don't I don't see them opposing tr like what they're going to defect to Trump because Trump supports Medicare for all. You know, so I, I honestly the actual uh, uh, analysis here, I think, is, is a little, you know, I mean, it's definitely complicated stuff. Right. So we are talking yeah. about humans. Right. <laughs> of course. Yeah. There's a critical distinction when you say Republicans. You know, when you talk about like Trump and the base, you're basically talking about like a cult of personality and the cult leader. And that's an entirely distinct thing from uh, someone like Mitch McConnell, who is an engineer. You know, he's there looking at the mechanics of what got him there, what keeps his, you know, tier of people. And in that sense, it is very classist. You know, you have people who occupy a certain strata of society that understand precisely why they're there. Whereas, you know, like people like Trump who have no ideology and it's probably a borderline nihilist and the people who are kind of following him around who also, you know, don't really have an ideology so much as they have like feelings on things, things they like, don't think yeah, things they like, things they don't. And, you know, Trump appeals to those in certain ways that, you know, they find, uh, you know, uh, pleasing and they kind of follow him around, but they don't know, uh, you know, they don't understand anything. I mean, and, all Trump understands is how to manipulate them. So as far as like how the world works, I mean, that that's more of the tier of like the, you know, the Mitch McConnell's or, um, you know, or their, his compatriots on the Democratic side, you know, folks like Joe Biden, who have certainly been comfortable with the credit card companies for a very long time. You know, there's a whole lot of people that occupy the, you know, quote unquote, elite tier of uh, society that run things, you know, and only kind of give lip service to what the people who are voting for them want to hear or, you know, get to understand, let's say. And, you know, that is the interesting thing about MMT is that, and we'll talk about this, I guess, in the next segment, but it's kind of a bridge for people that not only understand how things work, but are looking at more of a, a true socialist or Marxist reinterpretation of the American economy, let's say. And, mm -hmm. you know, that would be a good vehicle to get there. And, but we'll talk about that later. Uh, Mateo, you wanted to break in with a point? Uh, yeah. Uh, when we're talking about the Trumpists, I'd say actually like Trump is the ideology. Like a lot of these people, they weren't ideological Republicans. A lot of them will like be proud to tell you that they didn't even think about politics before Trump. So I think almost like he, he there's overlap, of course, but I think he pulls a different, like he's a different set of gravity than the actual Republican ideology. Yeah, there's some overlap, but he's definitely coming yeah. from a different base. I, I would say there's definitely overlap. Because you have people that identify culturally as conservative that follow Trump around and like what he says and stuff like that. Some of it's like you know, pers just straight personality. But I think that there's there's different there's definitely cultural things with that. Um, you know, absent you know the out and out racist, but there's other things like you know he says it, he tells it like it is. Well, he kind of talks like they talk. But what I'm saying is, um, 
like he could change his mind tomorrow and the people who will change their minds also tomorrow sure are pretty much like those people is what i'm saying and uh so it's almost like he is the ideology it's almost like, like it's still an ideological problem within the two like big tents that we have trump is almost like a i want to say he's just a flash in the pan type of phenomena i don't know i i think there's a difference though still or at least they'll they'll be more willing to admit that they see differently from trump when he's no longer president when it's socially safe to be you know contrarian again it, this happens every time there's a new president yeah i i do i kind of see where you're going with that i do want to give um you know some some credit to to trump supporters and they it's not that they don't understand anything they might not understand it as a high level as we are we we might or as other you know academics for certainly like, i don't understand things academics uh understand so um it's 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 you know it's a uh, layman like a layman knowledge is still knowledge and it's and, and that sort of thing uh adrian you have a point you want to break in with yeah so so what i was um one of the things that 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 we saw for example in hungary with uh victor orban was that um you basically had a right-wing reactionary uh nationalist who had relatively left-wing economic policies and the result was one of the largest landslides in Hungary's history. Yep. And, the, and the end result has been uh, the wiping out of democratic institutions of the country. Well, my point there being that the, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a vulgar term, but you know, the people are not, I don't think they are as ideological as, as we might perceive them to be. This goes into exactly what you know, all of you guys have been saying about how Trump is representative of a cult of personality and that you know trump himself has said it right you know i you know i can shoot someone in new york city <laughs> and still vote for me so but that to me that's evidence of the fact that that you can get i mean trump has 95 percent approval rating um in the in the republican party it's one it's it's, it's the highest of any republican president of the last like 30 years okay and to me that's evidence of the fact that if trump were to you know, go left on economic policies, he wouldn't be facing opposition from his base. He'd be facing opposition from the party. And that has right. to do not because yeah. the party has an ideological, not, I don't think it's necessarily, or I think the, again, I think the ideology is, is a, is an effect. Uh, it's a manifestation. It's something that is a, it, it occurs as an event, as a result of the underlying material interests. Right. So, and you see this the way, you know, the Koch brothers have been basically funding academic uh economic departments here in florida uh they just flooded you know uf and fsu uh with money to try to to try to get um you know mises and hayek taught in the in econ 101 classes and there is a very you know direct line between their material interests and what people what they want people to believe but i think in actuality you'd find that a lot of people are actually a lot less ideological and they don't even aren't really sure uh, what ideologies they would they are. Uh, they could say, and you know, once in one breath that interrupting myself. But so, like, if you take a case like Joe Rogan, right, which which is probably my favorite case study, because uh, you have someone who is basically your average Joe, uh, no pun intended, uh, who is basically a kind of a meathead, right? So Joe Rogan is looks like a smart guy, but he's not an he's not intellectual. He's not a, an academic. He likes DMT. He loves DMT. Uh, he's, you know, he's eating all red meat. He like hunts elk and like stores it in his freezer. Like he's, you know, someone who you'd think is not necessarily the most uh, uh, wisest and, and intellectual guy in the room. But 
nonetheless, uh, he's someone who, when he had Bernie Sanders on his podcast, basically resonated with Bernie's message to the point where he said he did, in fact, vote for uh, Bernie Sanders in the primary. And then now he's saying he'd rather vote for Trump over Biden. To me, that perfectly encapsulates the American electorate, which is that uh, they don't really know what they want. They don't really, they don't really have a set of view of principles. They will, on the one breath, on one breath, say, you know, there shouldn't be that many poor people. We should help the homeless. We should, you know, do more for society, so on and so forth. And on the other hand, will uh, maybe, you know, oppose the candidate that might be closer to doing that for totally reactionary reasons. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's basically the the point I, I wanted to make. Art, you wanted to break in with a point. Okay, just real quick. Um, so the trick with ideology is it with, you know, smart people like you guys, ideology means dogma. Like you're thinking of like church doctrine, chapter and verse, being able to look at, well, in this situation, this is what the scriptures call for. For the average person like me or dumber, <laughs> ideology is branding. So it is tribal affinity. It is, I'm on this team. I like the Yankees, I like the Braves, I like the Steelers, I like whoever because, you know, I am from this town, this is what my parents like, this is what my neighbors like, so this is what I like. So there's this weird disconnect where, you know, Trump is kind of the first guy in the modern era to really latch on to the idea that ideology is just a useful tool, but it's not useful because it gives you answers, it's useful because it's branding and it gives you access to large pools of people who are already kind of in the network. So I think when you kind of step back and just kind of tie that into MMT, one of the reasons that the the parties have resisted updating their branding and updating the dogma is because they don't want that understanding to get into the common person's understanding. So it's fine at, at like an ideological, almost like a secret doctrine, like the, the Scientologists, where you have those high levels of, in the church, where once you're a, you know theta level six, you get to see whatever high level doctrine they got, but they don't want the common people to know that. And I think that's really what MMT offers above and beyond just a useful way to you know understand how the economy actually operates. But it also gives them kind of a sense of, oh, wait a minute, this is, you know, this is kind of how the, I don't know, it, it's an easy access point to see how the world operates in a way that was d- denied to them because that's the way that the branding was siloed in the past. So it changes the brand in a way that suddenly makes everything more accessible. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. What, there was another point that you wanted to to bring up, um, talking about things uh, later on. Oh. What, what was that? What was that? Okay, so also, you know, speaking of like entry points and uh, into new and exciting opportunities, one of the interesting things about MMT is that while it does apply to our current, uh, you know, quote unquote capitalist system, it's also kind of something that I discovered, you know, being a UBI proponent is that I would butt heads with a lot of MMT proponents as far as like a jobs guarantee versus UBI of some type. And it took me a while to understand what that actual disconnect was, is why they were so deeply opposed to it. And what I finally came to understand was it's they don't oppose it because they think it wouldn't work. They're afraid that it would work. And with MMT, it would change the power dynamic in the country to something that's basically not capitalist, to something that's, you know, essentially uh, more, uh, you know, and the terms are loaded. I hate saying socialist or Marxist or all that, but let's put it in that sphere and say that it'd be something that would be less dominated by private interests and more by public interests. So 
with a UBI, it's something that could quote unquote fix capitalism or make it more stable in a way that our current system is kind of unraveling. It, it would be a way to shore it up. Uh, whereas with MMT, it would be a way to re basically rewrite the source code of how the country operates and do exactly that, basically change the power dynamics entirely. So I think that that's one of the things that people who are core MMT proponents, they all tend to be people who you have a great interest in dismantling capitalism as it currently exists and transitioning to something else. So what do you guys think about that? Um, no, I definitely, I definitely see that uh, on from, from my end as well. I think a lot of people are concerned that if you just hand out people cash, and say, do whatever you want with it. You know, uh, this is this will get you by. You know, if it's enough to, if it becomes a basic level of sustainment for a person, you know, you know, a thousand dollars a month, eh, it's nothing to sneeze at. It's going to help a lot of people, but it's not enough to live on. Well, what if it was? What if it was two thousand or three thousand or five thousand? Well, that's what I was getting at. Like, if the end goal ultimately with a lot of people that like UBI is to basically, you know, give you a floor standard of living that ensures people don't starve, don't go without, uh, don't starve, don't go without housing and get necessary medical, right? That's the ultimate goal of a UBI is to universal basic income that meets people's basic life needs. And a lot of that goes into to where uh, with a UBI, people wanting to make work a completely voluntary uh, venture. So right now people work not because they like to, but because they have to. It's a lot of things where, um, you know, ideological conservatives, you know, talking American ideological conservatism here, um, you know, Protestant work ethic, you only, you, you get what you can from working because you're contributing to everything else. There's a little bit of that on the left hand side of the spectrum as well, but with a lot of like anarchists and things like that, they, they want work to be a completely voluntary. They feel as though if you have to work for your bread, then it's not voluntary. And it becomes a moral, uh, moral uh, it becomes immoral to a, to a degree. It's, you know, the whole idea of wage slavery. So I can definitely think, see that being one of the, the main reasons that they are against it. Well, against UBI, but also uh, I think in that it kind of revealed the attraction to MMT is that, you know, they're saying we want universal basic services. Like we're looking to uh, fund things that they're saying we can't afford, but we can't afford them. We can't afford Medicare for all. We can't afford a jobs guarantee. We can't afford X, Y, and Z. And the reason that they're, we're not getting it is because they keep throwing their hands up and saying, well, we can't afford that. Joe Biden's doing it. He's saying, oh, we yeah. can't afford it. So, you know, at a real, and I don't even know this is, uh, it's technically ideological, but it, it's a, a strategic plan to, you know, get this understanding out there and argue for changing, you know, how America operates and whether or not you're for it or against it. You know, I think that that's one of the things that, you know, you'll see as a common thread with people who are deep into MMT is a kind of a deeper, you know, quote unquote, Marxist understanding of, uh, you know, the value of labor and all of that. And seeing that, you know, MMT would be that transition from where we're at to, you know, uh, a, a system more compatible with those understandings. And it should be mentioned that even though a lot of proponents of MMT are definitely on the left, MMT is itself is like power. It's not ideological. It just is. It exists. You can do with it what you want. Uh, Adrian, I know you probably have something to to comment on this as far as the um, the commodification of the individual. It does really boil down to the class analysis. 
and uh, and the fact that there's there's you know material interests for the continuation of the system that we have, and there's material interests um, that are resistant to changing it in any fundamental way or even in any superficial way. Uh, I mean, look at how much Obamacare was resisted for you know being just barely, barely, barely a difference in in what we had, uh, all things considered. Uh, not to say that it wasn't a positive change, which of course it, I think it was. But right. No, I understand you. Yeah, it was just you know, the the avalanche of resistance it got to what it actually was is you know mind boggling, but not surprising um, based on that you know class analysis that I presented. And I mean, just to kind of uh, put a little bit a little flag on what you said about MMT not necessarily being um, ideological, I, I generally agree with that point of view. Uh, but there's a little caveat that I want to add to that, which is that the the economy and public policy and the way those two things interact and the political system and how democratic it is, how participatory it is, how inclusive it is, all these different things are in interaction constantly and they exist independent of, of people's beliefs and ideology. Uh, so that part, I, I 100% am on board. But the fact that the, that, that, that the political system is uh, structured in a specific way, right? So we are operating on a 200-year-old uh, republicanism, liberal republicanism, right. that is designed to be as least democratic as possible um, by design. Mm. That is a ideological, that is embedded, is, embedded into that is the ideology, which is right. fundamentally anti-democracy. Anti and so I think that part that somebody should accompany any discussion involving uh, public policy and economics has to be the 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 question of of what does democracy really mean what does it really mean for a for for you know the average day voter or the average joe to to participate and be able to actually have their needs material needs met in a way that is just and and equitable and efficient and you know etc uh well before we go Adrian, thank you again for joining us today. I, I am under the impression that you have started your own podcast as well. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about it? Okay. So the, the MKT podcast is basically uh, just me. And what I do is I'll have on um, somebody to talk about literally any subject that is related to philosophy, politics, economics, which, I mean, those three things are so broad that it literally could the conversation just goes in, in any direction i recently had a uh, c derek varn on i don't know i don't know if you're uh, familiar with with him anthony no, i am not i to be honest with you i don't know philosophy well c derek varn is a uh, he's a really smart he's a marxian intellectual but he actually in that podcast offered a very uh interesting critique of mmt from the marxian pr perspective that um you know we kind of sparred a little bit over that okay so basically, I have on people to challenge ideas, also to discuss ideas. So yeah, and it's a uh, YouTube. You could just search it MKT podcast. It'll be uh, one of the first searches. We'll uh, we'll can, we'll include a link when we publish the episode. So so with that, everybody, I am sad to say that we are out of time. Thank you all for listening. And since you kept to the end, we know you liked it. So be sure to hit like subscribe, and share us with your friends. And like always, keep your head up through the political storm.